indeed we do. Hope that uh, you can be a part of it. Uh, it's been it's been uh, interesting to see the press uh, has gotten. Uh, found out about this, and maybe you've read some of the articles that have been written about uh, this Crown Point Church that's having a seminar on the African-American uh, church. I, I don't know if they're confounded by that or what, but uh, I like what it says, and I, I think this is important for us to say this to ourselves and to, uh, to this community, that we are opening our arms wide, and we want to celebrate uh, the diversity of our community as well as to impact it with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we'll be uh, taking steps in that direction next Sunday night. Hope you can be a part of it. Well, we have a lot to talk about today. We have a lot to talk about. And one of the reasons we have a lot to talk about is that for the last month, we have taken a hiatus from our series in 1 Corinthians, and we have been uh, celebrating the birth of Jesus, which is a worthy thing to celebrate, don't you think? I would have to say yes. So we took the break, and now here we are in the new year, uh, back in our series on 1 Corinthians. And what happens over time is that our memories get foggy. We don't remember exactly what we were talking about the last time we were together in the first Corinthians. And so to the, uh, to the goal of helping us all get back on the same page, I would like to, uh, to do a quick review of the last thing that we studied when we were together in first Corinthians, uh, chapter three. So I'm going to read the text again because we're springing from this, this week and next weekend. Uh, so let me read the text again. If you have a Bible, you can turn to first Corinthians three. I'm going to read verses 10 through 15. Here's what Paul says. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, Each one's work will become manifest for the day, capital D, will disclose it. Each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So Paul here is using a metaphor that is a comfortable one for us. He is using a construction metaphor, and he is saying that the church of Jesus Christ is a lot like the building of a building. And uh, to help with this, I used this graphic last week. We'll put it up again as a picture of what uh, Paul is, is describing here. He says, friends, you need to recognize that the building is precious because the foundation is precious. And the foundation of the church is Jesus Christ, meaning his person as God and man, his work dying on the cross, resurrection, exaltation to the right hand of God, that these, who he was and what he did, forms the foundation for the entire superstructure. And because it is precious, the whole thing is precious. And uh, other passages, Ephesians, uh, he goes on to talk about how upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, the apostles and the prophets built. And of course, he was one himself. And the reason that uh, this is critical to understand is that that the Bible for us is the the, uh, 
um, there's a word I'm looking for, is the repository. It's a good word, don't you think? It is the repository of the teachings of the apostles and the prophets, where they tell us about God, and they tell us about um, uh, God's plan, both in the past and in the future, and tells us about the gospel, and tells us about how to live the Christian life, and what this means, and what it means to live to the glory of God. All of this is in uh, the scriptures. So, the reason that the church has always held the scriptures as being precious is that these are, you know, Jesus is here, and then here is the Bible. This now is how God is building his church. And for 2,000 years... This gospel about Jesus Christ uh, has been going out. And uh, as people have taught and shared and people have heard and received that message and become followers of Christ, when that happens, then we are joined into the, into the superstructure. I got to tell you, between services, between services today, I was told, after first service, I was told that there was a young man that wanted to talk to me in the, in the bookstore. And so I went back there and his family had come last night and uh, he's 11 years old and just as sincere as he possibly could shared with me about how after last night's message and all of that, that he went home and he prayed with his dad and he became a Christian. And he says, can I be baptized? That's what he said. So yeah, that was great. A picture, and if you're a Christian, you got your story too, a picture of, of people being added then to the, the superstructure of the church. And we have Bethel Church up there. We use the graphic in 08. Here we are in 09. I hope it's still true. We are a part of the big, the big church and uh, not the pinnacle. We're just a brick in the building. So this is what uh, God is doing. He is building his church. And what Paul says here is that all Christians are workers in the church. If you are a Christian, you are a worker. The question is not whether you are or not. The question is whether you're a good one or not. And the quality of our service to the Lord. This now is what he uh, wants to talk to us about. And this passage and many others tell us that Jesus Christ himself is evaluating the quality of our service to him. And the picture that he uses here is of a purging fire. And he says that our lives will pass through an evaluation like a fire. And a fire, of course, uh, is a purging agent. It tests the quality of what uh, something is. And if what we have offered to him uh, is deemed by Christ to be a quality service, those things will pass into pass through the fire as gold, precious stones, and silver. If our lives and our time and our energy and our motivations and the things we cared about and the things we, we, we gave ourselves to do not pass through that, then they are like wood, hay, and stubble. They burn up. They don't last. And so the question is whether or not my life is being lived and the things that I'm doing are being lived in such a way that they have some value in eternity. And we use this picture as, a, as a, uh, an appropriate one. This, is, uh, this was taken after Hurricane Ike uh, blasted away at Galveston this summer. And there was, uh, this was a whole neighborhood. And then there was this one, this one house. And so we, we put that up there and we asked the question, how would you know which house in this community was built well? How would you know which house in this community uh, the foundation workers put a, put a good foundation in? How would you know which uh, framers 
did a really high quality job. How would you know which roofing company put a high quality roof on this uh, on, on a house? How, how would you know? And the answer is obvious. The one that endures the one that lasts. And that is exactly the point that Paul is making, that our lives are being lived now and Christ is is uh, observing and he is watching and he is cheering us on and he is anticipating and we should too the time when he will evaluate the quality of our lives and that there are rewards that are going to be given. Verse 14, some will receive a reward. Verse 15, though, also says that some will suffer the loss of reward. And the question we need to begin asking ourselves is, what about me? What will be true for me? What is Christ going to say about me? So, on the other side of judgment... There is, I I didn't mention this, that there is this this Bema seat judgment, the judgment seat of Christ that the Bible talks about is when we are going to stand before him and give an account of our life. This time is coming. If you are a Christian, you are going to stand before him. It is not a judgment of salvation. It is not a moral judgment. Romans 8, 1 makes it clear that there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. This is not a question of heaven or hell. It It is a judgment of commendation. Commendation of reward and, and honor and, and uh, of, of, of encouragement. So this is what uh, we are talking about. And this is a critical truth. Friends, I don't, uh, I don't know if we even, in fact, I can say confident, we don't even begin to realize how important this is. Someday, all of us are going to stand before the Lord. And if I live today for today, I someday am going to look back on this day and say that I was a fool. If I lived this week for this week and what this week had ahead uh, for me and did not live in light of eternity, someday I will look at this week in my life and say, I was a fool. Because we have this one life to live for the Lord. And then there is this judgment seat and then there is eternity. And the rewards that are, are promised to us. I mean, imagine this, the king of heaven, Christ, all of the glory and all of the riches and all of the honor that are his. And he is here promising to us that he will reward those that serve him well. And he means this to be a motivation to us. This is not a drag. Okay. This is not a drag. This is a motivation. The king is really motivated to lavish rewards upon his faithful servants. So serve well is the point. Serve well and live this day in such a way that someday when I am dead, I'll be glad that I lived it this way. And that really is the aim of what I'm, um, I'm doing here this morning is to encourage every person here, all of us, to leave here today firm in our hearts and our minds that I am going to live this week in such a way that when I am dead, I am glad that I did. That's what I'm hoping for. All right. As we talk about this subject, today's message, which I'm excited about, next week's message, which I am really excited about, I've actually written much of it already, um, these are basically going to be application points to 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. So we're not really plowing into any more of 1 Corinthians, but just pausing and saying, let's, let's think about this a little bit. This is a very important consideration for us. Now, if I was you, um, 
and hadn't been to two services already talking about this, I would be wondering to myself, hmm, so he's going to give us rewards. I wonder what they are. What are these heavenly rewards? And so let's begin by answering that question as best we can from Scripture. And the Bible, whenever it talks about these, uh, these things that, that Christ is going to give us, it uses some key words. Uh, and I'm just going to walk through a few of them. Here's the first one. It talks about what Christ is giving us as eternal reward or inheritance. Let me give you some verses. We've got lots of Scripture here this morning, but we're, we're just going to try to pull it all together. Luke chapter 6. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says this, Blessed are you when people hate you and they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil. Now some of you might be like, well that sounds like the week I've had. Okay, it's not because, you know, we're annoying that they don't like us. There's no value in that. Why? On account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. Hebrews 11, verse 6. We could plan on this one for a long time. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. There is a reward for earnestly seeking the Lord. Colossians 3, whatever you do, work heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. Why? Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Hebrews 11, verse 26, talking about Moses. You know, Moses was a big guy, big deal guy in, uh, in Egypt. Had all the comforts of Egypt, had all the things he could ever want. It was just, he had it good. He had it good. Did you see the movie? And yet, for some reason, he left all of that and walked around with the Israelites in the wilderness for, uh, for 40 years. Why would somebody do that? Hebrews tells us why. Here's why he did it. Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. 1 Peter 1, 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. 2 John, verse 8, here's a key one. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Look out. Be careful with your life. Don't lose what you've worked for. Finish strong. Why? So that you can get a full reward. And then Revelation 22 verse 12. This is very uh, interesting. Here's what Jesus himself says. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. Now, what's, uh, I think, uh, poignant about this final one is that these are amongst the last words in all the Bible. These are like the last words of Jesus. Here now, Christians, is what I want you to recognize, and that is that I am coming very soon. And I want you to know that when I come, I'm bringing my reward with me. And the thing that you need to recognize about this reward is that I am going to divvy it out according to what each one has done. So what have you done? What have you done? 
So from these passages, we see that the basis for the reward that Christ is promising is what we do for him in this life. Next, next word, common word, is crown or crowns. And I would bet if you've ever heard teaching on eternal reward, you've probably heard messages about these, uh, these crowns. So let's first of all look at a few of the passages that, that uh, talk about this. James 1.12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Are you under a trial today? Is, uh, is, has your life turned in a direction where it is hard to follow Jesus? And you're wondering today, why on earth should I stick it out? Why not punt? Why not quit? Why not run away? Here is a reason not to do any of those things. Here's what he says. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Hang in there in a trial and there is a crown that Christ will give. 2 Timothy 4.8, the Apostle Paul, kind of his uh, swan song verse, he says, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Another verse, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. 1 Peter 5.4, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And so... In the New Testament, oftentimes, when it's talking about this reward, it talks about crowns. And I don't know about you, but I am not terribly excited about this. Because I think about wearing a crown on my head forever. I don't like wearing a hat that long myself, but a crown on my head forever. This is not particularly uh, exciting uh, for me, and maybe you're with me in that. So this is where the the image of crown and what a crown meant in the culture of the Bible uh, is is helpful to understanding what it's actually saying to us uh, here. A a crown in the biblical culture was not about the crown. It was not about the crown. It was about the honor and the distinction that having a crown meant for you. Okay? So, uh, in the Bible, there are, just quickly, there are three purposes that a crown um, uh, was used for. It was used with the priest to consecrate them. So consecration, it was used for the king to coronate them. So coronation. And the third thing was for exaltation. If you won a race, you were given a kind of crown. And last night and this morning, I stumbled on what to call the thing that they gave to the, to the, to the athletes who won. And that's one reason it's good to come to third service. Because by now, anything that I've messed up with, I've had plenty of people who've come to me and corrected me on what I should say. And I had somebody after second service who very kindly came to me and said, it's called a laurel wreath. So, third service people, you're getting something nobody else has gotten this whole weekend. When the athlete won the race, he would receive a laurel 
wreath. It was a kind of crown. Or if you were the hero of the war, you would receive a kind of crown. It would exalt you. It would give you, it would give you distinction. So this then is what a crown meant in the biblical culture. A state of honor or blessing for those who wore them. A state of honor or blessing for those who wore them. Having a crown was not about the crown. You didn't just sit there and look at the crown and say, oh, look at the jewels and this is, how much is this crown worth? No, it was about the honor that having a crown meant for you. This is how, uh, and this explains another passage of scripture in Revelation 19, when it describes Jesus Christ uh, and what he, what he is like and what he looks like. Here, here's what it says, Revelation 19 verse 12. His eyes are like blazing fire. And on his head are many crowns. How does that work? How on your head do you have many crowns? Are they, are they, are they like stacked, stacked like Tupperware or something, you know, on your head? Is that what it's, I mean, no irreverence by that. But you see, this, this doesn't work if we're thinking crown, crown, crown. The point is not the crown. The point is that Christ is worthy of all honor and glory. And so therefore, the picture, the image is that upon his head are many crowns because he is eminently worthy of them. Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon the throne, as the hymn says. Now, we're not saying with that, get metal crowns and put them on his head. We are saying he is glory. And it's an image. It's an image. So the crowns here that are being described are symbolic of the honor and the blessing that Christ is going to bestow upon those who serve him faithfully in this life. That's the point. Now, another mistake that is that we oftentimes make with this is that, uh, and this is sad for me because the mistake comes from one of my favorite songs. One of my favorite songs is Holy, Holy, Holy. When I see it in the order of service and all that, I'm like, yeah, we're going to, we're singing that song. I sing it to the Lord often in my personal time with him. And I love that song. But unfortunately, one of the stanzas uh, confuses us on this point. Here's what it says. Holy, 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 all the saints adore thee, casting down their golden crowns upon the glassy sea. Which it sings very nicely, truly, it does, and rhymes as well, but it's not true. <laughs> and I hear people that they'll, they'll say things like, oh, I look forward to the day when I cast my crowns at his feet. And they're very sincere in saying it. And this thought comes from Revelation 4, where there are 24 elders that are around the throne of God. And every time the angels worship God, the 24 elders fall down before him and they cast their crowns at his feet. The 24 elders do. There is no passage of scripture that says that we take the honor and the blessing that Christ bestows upon us for a lifetime of service and give it back to him. And I think that actually, in a, in a subtle way, this has undermined what uh, Christ wants these rewards to be. Because we think to ourselves, well, I worked my whole life, he gives them to me, and then I just got to give them back to him anyway. So what's the point? I might as well take it easy. I don't get to keep them in the end. Uh, no, actually, you do. 
forever. Forever. So I really do not believe that uh, we're talking about a crown, crown, a physical crown that's going to sit on our head. He's talking about honor and blessing that Christ is going to bestow upon those that faithfully serve him. Perhaps a, uh, a helpful picture would be from Thursday night's uh, national championship football game. Um, I am a dedicated sports enthusiast, and so if you are, you watch certain events out of a certain duty to the athletic world. Uh, I don't watch a lot of baseball, but I watch the League Championship Series and the World Series and the All-Star Game, just because I'm a sports, uh, you know, sports enthusiast. I, uh, I, I don't have time to get off on that. But Thursday night, I was watching the National Championship football game between the Florida Gators and some other team, uh, no, Oklahoma, that uh, they played. And the Florida Gators were crowned national champions. And I watched the game... And I watched the post-game, and I watched the award ceremony, and I didn't see one Florida Gator walking around with a crown on his head. Not one. But they were crowned national champions, meaning that now they have the honor that goes along with being the best team in the country. So this is, I think, what he is, what he is describing when he talks about crowns. Here's a third common way that these are described, and that is treasure. Treasure. Matthew 6, verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where moth and rust decay and where thieves break in and steal. Rather, lay up for yourselves treasures. I said that wrong, didn't I? Was I going to just keep going and none of you were going to say anything at all? This is where heresy comes from. If you can twist the scriptures... And nobody cares, then there's something wrong. There should have been a, an outcry of some sort. All right, let's start again. Do not lay for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not decay and where thieves cannot break in and steal. So there is apparently a way to live life where you are laying up treasure here and you got nothing there. And there's another way to live where you maybe don't have as much here, but you got lots there. And that's what Jesus is saying. Live so you got lots there. Treasure in heaven. Luke 12, the parable of the rich fool, where the guy, he has got so much money, doesn't even know what to do with these. Ah, just build bigger barns. And uh, this is what God says to him. Fool, that night your soul is required of you and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. There is a way to live in which you are rich here and impoverished towards God. And there is also a way to live where you may or may not be physical, material rich here, but you are rich towards God. Live that way. 1 Timothy 6, Paul commands Timothy to tell the rich people that they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. So treasure, there is heavenly treasure. But here's the thing to know about it is that it is not money. It is not money in heaven and on the new earth. In fact, we're going to look back at the way that we treasured money here and all the things that we did for and thought about it and worked hard and all the things for, for money. And we are going to laugh and grieve about it. 
Because there will be no, no money in the new earth. There will be no need for it. The treasure, real treasure, in the new heaven and the new earth is going to be the richness and the fullness of knowing Christ. And to us right now, we're like, oh, that, okay. No, I'm telling you, that will be, that's what we're going to crave, is more of him. Because Christ is the treasure. Christ is the treasure, isn't he? Even like in this life, this is not what Paul said in Philippians 1 when he said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. How can, how can death be gain? When I die, I get more of him. So it's better than living, he says. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Christ is the treasure. He is. And so when we get into this new heaven, this new earth, after the judgment and all of that, there is going to be a high prizing of the richness of, of knowing Christ. And I believe the treasure that Christ is going to give us is going to be some kind of honor and distinction that along with it comes a richness of fellowship with him that is greater than those who did not treasure him and serve him in this life. And we're going to talk about this next week. I'm excited about today's message. Did I say this already? Did I tell you already that I'm really excited about next week's message? Okay. But that's what we're going to talk about is how is everybody happy in heaven and on the new earth? And yet some are more than others. How does that work? That's what I want to talk about. And it gets to this point right here. It is the fullness of divine experience. It is, that's going to be what it's just going to be. Yeah. We're going to love it. Psalm 1611. In thy presence is fullness of joy. And at thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. We got to have a right view of what eternity is going to be like. Because it is, we're not just floating around in clouds and all this. We are living in a real world and we have real bodies and we're thinking like we kind of do now, only better. And we are going to experience society and we're going to eat and we're going to dance and we're going to make music and we're going to play golf and all these other things that we're going to do. And there, we will have desires and we are going to, we are going to treasure Christ. And we are going to look back on these days either with profound regret for the little that we did for him and the eternity of loss of reward that we are experiencing or with profound joy in the fact of every sacrifice, every suffering we endured for his name, everything that we did for him. We will be eminently glad that we did that. And so again, the point is live today in such a way that when you're dead, you're glad you did. All right. So as we start pulling this all together, treasure, riches, um, crowns, here's what is becoming, should become evident to us, is that salvation and eternal life is the same for everybody. But the rewards that we receive are not the same. Which leads then to this question. Uh, that you may be thinking to yourself, okay, well, if there are rewards that are promised, and if I'm to live in such a way that I receive these rewards, if that's, if that's being wise with my life, what are the criteria that Christ is going to use to evaluate me? And in asking this question, there is a serious danger that I want to make very clear right now. 
Because if you come to this service today and you leave here and you're thinking to yourself, boy, I want to get to heaven and therefore I'm going to go out and I'm going to do as much as I can for Jesus. You have completely missed the point. Salvation is not a matter of human effort. It is entirely by God's grace. And if you want to get, if you want to experience eternal life, if you want to receive forgiveness of sins, if it is your desire to have a relationship with your creator, you do not need to leave here and go to try to earn it because you never can. You need to, you need to repent of your sins and to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ who died for those sins. And the Bible says that God will forgive your sins and you will experience eternal life for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, belief in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the thing to do. Do not confuse this. Salvation is entirely by grace, but rewards are by human effort. And this may sound a little bit like a, uh, a contradiction, but it is true. And if we miss either part of this, we do great damage to our soul. If we look at salvation and we say that I'm going to do something, I'm going to merit favor with God, we have changed the gospel into a gospel that will not save us. Do not do that, as I just got done saying. At the same time, if I view uh, eternity and these rewards, um, and I ignore all these exhortations to live in such a way that we receive rewards, the fruit of that will be that I will always live a risk-free comfort-loving, convenience-only kind of Christianity. Well, hey, I got eternal life already, so what's the big deal? Right? I'll serve him when it kind of works into my schedule. I'm interested in maybe sacrificing something that I don't really feel like it's going to hurt me that much to do. We'll just end up living a kind of Christianity where I am in it for what it does for me in this life because I already got got heaven already. Your best life now is a great summary of what happens when you miss the point of what Paul is talking about here. We are not living for our best life now. We are living in light of eternity. As Luther said, there are two days to live for, this day and that day. It's like last night, I, my, my little routine that I have on Saturday nights uh, is that I go to Beef O'Brady's for a hamburger. And I go over my sermon and kind of get everything all ready. Um, so, like, don't come to see me then. Or, hey, let's go see Pastor Steve. He's getting ready. I don't want to talk to you. Uh, <laughs> they're kind enough. They have a little back room that they let me use. And, and I uh, try to avoid people. But I was there last night. And the waitress uh, came up. And she saw my notes. And I'm getting ready. And and we started talking about, you know, what I'm doing. And I said, hey, I'm getting ready to go speak at our Saturday night service. And, and I said, in fact, I'm speaking on eternity. Do you have anything that, you got anything good for me? Because if you got something good, I could work it into my message, is what I told her. And she goes, I don't know, but I'll have to get back with you. So she disappeared to go serve some other tables or something. And then she came back and I said, do you have anything for me? And she goes, no. I said, well, I have something for you. And so I pulled out a, the, one of the napkins and I had a pen and I put a dot and then I put a long line. And I said, if the dot is your life and the long line 
is eternity. Which do you think you should live for? She's like, probably the long line. And I said, that's right. And then that was the end of it. Uh, But it's the point that I'm making right now is how foolish we are to live for the dot. How foolish we are to live for this brief temporary life. And how foolish to ignore the exhortation that Jesus said, I want to reward you. I want to lavish my my riches upon you and I will to all who faithfully serve me. It's, it's, this is not a drag. This is a, this is a motivation from Christ to us. And by the way, as you think about how do you synthesize salvation by grace apart from human effort and rewards that are, that are based upon human effort, the way that I try to bring these together is that it's all of God. It's all of God. The grace that I have received from him has changed my heart. The desire to even serve him comes from his grace in the first place. So that I serve him and I sacrifice or whatever I'm doing, it is I that do it. But I do it because I love him. And I love him because he first loved me, 1 John four nineteen. That's about as good as I can do in bringing these things together. Okay, so what are the criteria? You're like, thank you, Pastor Steve. Let's get to the criteria. That's what we're really interested in. Okay, what are some of the criteria for these rewards? Um, and I'm just going to go through these. Think carefully about them. First of all, enduring temptation and trial, James 1.12 says, will be rewarded. Quitting, giving up, running away, will not. Diligently seeking God will be rewarded. When I am motivated by God's praise and not by man's, and I offer my service to God on that basis, that will be rewarded. This is what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. When you go to pray, don't announce to everybody, hey, everybody, right now I want you to know that I'm going to pray. That's what the religious leaders did. And Jesus says they already have their reward. Don't do that. When you go to give, don't, you know, don't blow trumpets. Don't announce that you're giving. Don't put your tithing envelope right side up in the plate so everybody knows that you gave and how much. Don't do that. Why? Because you already received your reward. When you go to pray, do it in a way that nobody knows that, but God that you're doing it. And then he will reward you. When you give, give in such a way that nobody really knows about it except God. And then he can reward you. When we do things for man's praise, man's praise is the reward. And God's praise, by the way, is a lot better than man's praise. Dying for Christ. Martyrs for the Lord, I have to believe, are going to be richly rewarded. The degree of sacrifice. Jesus said, no one who has left brother, mother, father, sisters, in-laws, the long list, will fail to receive 100 times as much. So the more that I sacrifice in in serving the Lord, the greater will be the reward for it. The less that I sacrifice, the less reward. There's a scale. Faithfully doing God's will and longing for Christ's return will be rewarded. Acts of kindness will be rewarded. Hospitality and an open-armed approach to people, this is the famous cups of cold water, will never be forgotten and will be rewarded. Faithfulness in service, this is a big one. 
faithfulness and service. First John 4, 2, we'll get to that in a moment, is required for a man to be found, a steward to be found faithful. Or, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Sticking with it, being true to it, not quitting, doing it in the long run, that's what is going to be rewarded. And then finally, at least in the list that I've compiled here, is stewardship of the abilities and opportunities that God gives to us. This is the parable of the talents and the minus. He gives five to one, three to one, and one to one. And the five makes five more, the three makes three more. He doesn't expect the three to make five or the five to make three. There is a scale there. The more that you receive from him, the more there is an expectation of of return. So the opportunities that God brings to us, the gifts that he gives us, the resources that he provides to us, the length of life, all these things factor into the amount of reward that Christ gives to us. So again, I want to make something clear. Eternal life and salvation is the same for every Christian. But the rewards and the honor and the distinction uh, enjoyed for eternity are not the same. There are some whose lives are going to be gold. Their work is going to come through as gold, precious stones, and silver. And they will be rewarded. And there are others. He describes the man who is merely saved and there is nothing that he has to show for his life. And so I think what we ought to be asking ourselves as we look at this list is, what about me? In fact, let's look at this again and, and go slow here. This may not seem that important to you right now. I'm here to tell you someday there will be nothing more important to you than this. How are we doing? What is the shape of our life looking like? One of the things that strikes me about the, about the list is how God measures so differently than we do when it comes to spirituality and who's really sort of godly and all of that. We tend to look at people and, and to judge them by, you know, the... Uh, are they well known? You know, are they a famous Christian? Are they, you know, the size of the ministry that they're involved in or that they're leading or, you know, their reputation or something like that? And that's not even, there's none of that there, is there? The judgment is not a, it's not a quantitative judgment. It is a qualitative judgment that he makes upon us. In fact, last night I was talking with some people after the service and, and we were talking about how this is going to work. And, you know, Jesus said this. He, he basically warned us. He said, you need to realize the judgment day is going to be a shocking day. Those that have been deemed great in the kingdom or many of those who've been deemed great in the kingdom, they actually are going to be, end up being the least. And many who are last shall be first. And I was talking with some guys over here after the service, and we were just thinking about this out loud together. Like, you know, who's going to be the somebodies in heaven and on the new earth? Like, who's going to... And I just, I I don't think it's going to be anybody we've ever heard of. Maybe a few, but, you know, not many. It's not going to be Joe Author, who is the big, you know, la, 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 or or some guy that was a famous Christian. I think it's, it's going to be people like some lady that served in a village in India, and she taught some group of kids, 
And for 40 years, she'd get early there and she'd clean up the space and she prayed over them. She knew all of their names. She followed their lives afterwards. She discipled them and she did it year in and year out with limited resources, but she did it because she loved the Lord. It was her act of service. That's the kind of woman who in, I think, this judgment is all of a sudden going to be, is going to be, wow, wow. But you know, the same opportunity for reward is available to all of us. That's the thing. There isn't anybody here who does not have the possibility and by God's grace, the capacity to live a kind of life that in the end will be richly rewarded. None of us. We all have the opportunity to in the end be rewarded. All right, here's the point. Here's the thing I want you to get. Friends, listen, I love you. I want you, I want to be the kind of pastor that prepares you for eternity. That's my job. That's my role. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. You have one life. You have this one life to live, and then you stand before Christ to give an account. And I don't know exactly how that chronology all works, but that's what's going to happen. We're going to stand before Christ himself. Imagine what just that is like, to stand before Christ in all of his resplendent glory. It's like standing in front of the sun. I mean, just there he is, and he's just, you know, the glory of, of the exalted son of God. I mean, it's just going to be, he is more beautiful and more glorious than we can even begin to imagine. And there we will be. And, and I don't know exactly how this works and all that, but I hear people that say stupid things like this. I shouldn't say the word stupid. Some of your parents tell your kids not to say stupid. So I retract that. But it is stupid to say things like this. Is there a screen and are other people going to see my life lived out on the screen in heaven? What about Susie? Is she going to see? What, what about Tom? Is he going to know? Oh, you won't care about what anybody else thinks about your life. The only thing that you or I are going to care about in that moment is what does he think about it? In that moment, we will tremble before him. And and again, we can't even begin to fathom what this is going to be like. It is coming. It is a day that is coming. And you remember that I told you this day was coming. We are going to stand before him and there he will be. And with eyes of perfect knowledge and justice and fairness and wisdom, he will look down upon me and my life. And there will be an evaluation that will be made. Think of it. What's he going to ask us if he asks us? I think these scriptures are helpful. Like, describe for me how you served me in your life. What are you going to say? 
What would you say right now, up to this point in your life? How, what, would you, what would you say? Or, you know, I gave you many opportunities to share with others about me. What did you do with them? Or, please list for me the sacrifices you made for my sake. And tell me what you gave up in order to do it. Or, tell me every time you truly died to yourself to serve me. Or, give me as many examples as you can where you did what you did because you loved me more than yourself. These and other kinds of questions might be posed to us, and I want us to ask the question, What do we have to say? Look at your life. Let's look at our lives. What do we have to say? Will we have anything to say? Because our lives are going to pass through this evaluation. What will what will they what will they show? And I just gotta tell you, we gotta take this serious. I I don't know. I may never preach a message ever again that could have a more dramatic impact upon our church if actually believed and applied than this one. Can you imagine a couple thousand people living passionately for reward on that day and commendation from Christ? Like, can you imagine what that, was, that would be like? Where... The more inconvenient something is, or the more difficult something is, the more we're interested in it, because those are the things that receive a greater reward. And the easy things and the convenient things, we're like, I don't know, there's not much, okay, but I'm really interested in, in the hard thing. I just tell you, you old people that are here, your days are numbered. They are. And if you look at your life, you're like, you know what? I'm not sure what I can say. You better get busy. You had better get busy. Someday you'll be glad I told you that. I think about the young people that are here, and I know we have many in this service. You know, it's always been young people who seem to get a hold of this in a kind of way that sends them out into their life, doing something radical for Jesus. And I just say, young people, I, your, your, your parents may not get it, and maybe your friends don't get it, but I'm promising you, if you get it, and if you get after it, that the shape of your life and the things that God will do in you and through you will be something that someday you're going to be really glad that you did. And I would challenge the young people to not make pick the easy way. Don't look at your life and say, how can I just make the most money? How can I become the the biggest person or whatever it is? Look at your life and say, how can I make it count for the Lord? For years in my dorm room, I had a quote by a guy named Paul Beals that said, you're only young once, but if you do it right, that's enough. Young people, do it right and live your life for Christ. You'll be glad you did someday. 
You know, this is the thought that this is what has, for 2,000 years, has sent people into ministry and into service in radical ways. This is what, this is what sends people to hard places with the gospel. Like, take our missionary, Ruth Ann Mahone. Right now, she's in a country that I can't even tell you where she is because of security concerns. And she is reaching, trying to reach a very hard religious group. Why? Why would a young girl with plenty of smarts to get a really nice job and have a nice, comfortable life here in America, why would she do something like that? Unless she thought there was greater gain in the end in doing it than anything that a comfortable life here in America would offer. Not that you can't be radical for Jesus in America. We need lots of radical for Jesus people in America for sure. But you see how this works. This is what sends God's people across the street to their neighbor with love and compassion and with a message. Do you do that? Do you know their names? Do you pray for them? Why? Because Christ has put these things out there along with a love for him, absolutely, as motives for serving him. This is what motivates inconvenient service. This is what helps us in trials where we treasure more the fruit that persevering in the trial would produce than any comfort that running from the trial could ever bring. We stick with it. We hoopomeno. We persevere in the trial. Why? James 1. Because in the end, I will receive the crown of life. And I'm more interested in that than in my comfort in this life. So I stick with it. God's people should be really stick with it kind of people because our eye is on the prize at the end. This is what causes people to serve Christ in a way that costs them something. Really. And that doesn't play well in American kind of Christianity, but that's the biblical Christianity. David said when he went to buy the, buy the, uh, the little room there, I will not offer anything to the Lord that does not cost me something. I've been reading Dietrich Bonhoeffer lately. And he's got a lot to say about the kind of pukey Christianity that doesn't cost anybody anything. That's not biblical Christianity. It's not Christ. Why did Christ go through what he did? And there is a multitude of reasons. But one of them that the writer of Hebrews highlights says this, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despised its shame. He did it for the reward that was coming, the joy. These light and momentary trials are achieving for us a glory that far outweighs them all. And on and on we could go in scripture just telling us, listen, people, hang in there. Serve faithfully. Do it with the right motive. Do it for God's glory, but do it. And someday there is a king that is going to reward you. Which, again, this is not a bummer. This is, this is motivation for serving Christ. And if we, would, if we would get a hold of this in our hearts, the transformation would be so fantastic for all of us, all of us, to live for eternity. And for those that do, and I hope that that's you today, I can just tell you that someday we are going to struggle to fathom the reward that Christ is going to give us. We will. We'll be like, oh, wow. 
I didn't deserve this. He is going to lavish us with his reward. He is a generous king. So let's live for that day. Let's do it. Until he comes or we die, let's serve him. That's my word today.